Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Listeners of the podcast know that every few months we run an episode devoted entirely to national security with four experts. So that means that as in past similar episodes, I'm out of this one in favor of the always splendid and knowledgeable Frank Figliuzzi, who welcomes a great group of national security experts, Ken Delanian, Elizabeth Newman, and David Laufman. We could not have chosen a worse day of news or a more vital day for expert analysis. Frank and friends have convened on the most gruesome and most important day in national security in several years, namely the very day of the Kabul airport bombings. They spend the first half of their discussion focusing on Afghanistan and the impact our withdrawal and the exploitation of it by terrorists will have on homeland security and national security. In the second half of this episode, they discuss the rally of the former president in Coleman, Alabama, where Trump was booed by the audience when he encouraged them to get a COVID vaccine as well as the news that the January 6th Select Committee has issued a broad request for records as it goes about investigating the violence. So let me now turn the mic over to Frank to start the discussion on this very grim and consequential day. This is Frank Figlusi, and once again, I am honored to be asked by Harry Littman to guest host Talking Feds. So I'm going to welcome our guests, beginning with Elizabeth Newman. Elizabeth is a homeland security expert. She worked at the Department of Homeland Security starting in 2003, serving on a counterterrorism council. She also worked in the office of the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI. More recently, Newman served as a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff in the Department of Homeland Security from 2017 to April of 2020. After her resignation, she called out the Trump administration for allowing domestic extremism to flourish. She formed the Republican Political Alliance for Integrity and Reform with another former Trump administration official. Since early 2021, Elizabeth works as the co-director of the Republican Accountability Project, as well as serving as the senior advisor on national security to the National Immigration Forum. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Glad you're here. And I'm also happy to welcome a colleague of mine from NBC News, and that's Ken Delanian. Ken is an NBC News correspondent who covers intelligence and national security. Prior to joining NBC, Delanian worked as an intelligence writer for the Associated Press starting in 2014 and as a national security correspondent for the LA Times before that. For four years, my colleague Ken was posted in Rome as a foreign correspondent where he covered Europe and the Middle East, making multiple trips to Iraq to report on the war there. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Frank, it's an honor to be with you. And last but certainly not least, we have with us today, David Lofman. David is a partner at Wigan and Dana's White Collar Defense, Investigations, and Corporate Compliance Practice Group, a member of the International Trade Compliance Practice Group, and co-chair of the National Security Practice Group. While he's not speaking on behalf of Wigan today, he's speaking and sharing from his own experience, for example, as a federal prosecutor and a senior official at DOJ's highest operational and policy levels. As chief of staff to the deputy attorney general from 2001 to 2003, he assisted in the day-to-day -day management of the DOJ and helped to coordinate responses to the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Afterward, he served as assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia, where he prosecuted terrorism, export control, and other national security offenses. He began his career as a CIA analyst. Most recently, David represented U.S. Capitol Police officers at Gunnell and Harry Dunn regarding their witness testimony at a July 2021 hearing before the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attacks at the U.S. Capitol. David, thanks for agreeing to do this. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you all. So a great panel for a national security discussion. And let's acknowledge that we are recording this on Thursday, having learned now that the attack at the airport in Kabul 
includes U.S. fatalities, specifically U.S. military fatalities. We've got to dive into that and specifically talk about its impact on homeland security and what it might mean here closer to home. There's been a lot of energy expended and even brain cells expended on whether we should have pulled out of Afghanistan or not, whether the, the withdrawal should have gone better or not. We're going to leave that for some other panel because what we're talking about is national security. So let's start off by offering this question. Will the events of the withdrawal, including this tragic attack outside the airport, impact the way national security professionals operate, have repercussions for the terrorism threat here at home, or even evolve into a domestic cause for those on the far right who are prone to violence, who might see this as yet another cause or grievance. Look, I think immediately what's going to happen, which has probably already been underway, is that the FBI and other domestic law enforcement agencies are going to continue to ping their networks of informants, sit on communications they're already sitting on, really tighten up every effort they can to maximize the opportunity to detect and disrupt any ongoing plots to engage in violence here, whether they are jihadist in nature or people who are just losing their bearings and undertaking other attempts to cause mass casualties. It's doubtful that there's going to be any successful terrorist attack anywhere near the scale of a 9-11 because of the events of today or even the fall of Afghanistan. But I am confident that the FBI and other agencies are going to maximize efforts to identify and disrupt and move aggressively and quickly. Yeah, I think things just got a whole lot harder for counterterrorism folks at FBI, DHS, CIA as well. Any thoughts on linking events in Afghanistan and then the withdrawal and the tragic loss of life to the homeland? I think there's multiple things that we have to be concerned about. One, I think the way in which we have conducted this withdrawal has hurt our relationships with allies, including the countries where we operate. And a lot of what we have done over 20 years of counterterrorism is figured out how to partner with other countries and let the host government or the host good guys carry out the counterterrorism fight on our behalf. And watching the scenes that are playing across the globe are pretty devastating and heart-wrenching. It makes it likely that potential partners in the future are going to pause and consider whether they can trust the United States. And why does that matter for the homeland? Because when we can't partner with those countries where ISIS is trying to take root or Al-Qaeda is trying to take root, those countries do usually don't have the capability to take care of the problem themselves. And we end up in this circumstance where they get safe haven enough to conduct external operations. It's not to say there haven't been threats over the last 20 years, even during my recent tenure at DHS, there were external operations plots coming from other parts of the world that we had to monitor. But it is nothing like the post 9-11 period where we were actively dealing with multiple threat streams, multiple plots coming out of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So the first thing that I worry about is the impact on the ability of the agencies such as the intelligence community, DOD, to continue to partner with our partners overseas to keep the threats away from the homeland. So that's part one. Part two, you kind of alluded to, is that the biggest threat we're facing right now is that domestic violent extremism threat inside the homeland. And we are already seeing that the chatter is increasing, particularly around two kind of threat streams, militia violent extremists who are attempting to recruit out of former military veterans. They're using this as a reason why you should not trust our government. You should come join us. We need to take back our countries. And then there's a lot of anti-refugee, anti-migrant conversations happening online. And a few of them have suggested targets of violence beyond just the typical things that we're used to seeing. They're actually talking about targeting the refugees themselves. And the last five years, academic research is showing us when you have that kind of rhetoric and it gets amplified by senior officials and, and people with large platforms, 
it translates to increases in hate crimes and acts of violence. Yeah, some really, really good points there. Like you, I am concerned about this being used to fuel domestic violence here. I'm already seeing posts on extremist sites about refugees, even, hey, mainstream social media, we have elected officials posting photos from inside those large transport planes filled with Afghan refugees and saying, quote, you know, do you want this plane load of people in your town? So we're going to see that. You mentioned the veterans who are associated or aligned with extremism, violent ideology, grabbing onto this as a sense of, I fought over there and now we've been abandoned. So this has to be watched closely. Can you cover national security every single day? You talk to active people in the community. What are you hearing? I'm really of two minds about this. And I think both David and Elizabeth made a really important point, which is that despite some overheated rhetoric that we're seeing, it's not like it was before 9-11. We haven't just lost 20 years of progress in the war against Al-Qaeda, according to my sources. Administration officials have said, and the director of the CIA said it in the worldwide threat hearing, that Al-Qaeda no longer had the capacity to attack the U.S. homeland, at least from Afghanistan. Now, that was then. That was when U.S. troops were there and, and the Afghan government was in control. So now we move to the flip side, which is that the security situation obviously has changed dramatically. It doesn't mean that all the progress has been erased, but all of a sudden it's become a lot more difficult to mount counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan. We all know about the 20-year drone war that's been waged by the CIA and to a lesser extent the military, and it's been extremely successful in degrading Al-Qaeda. But in every place those strikes take place, they rely on agents on the ground, on human intelligence, on intelligence platforms that are in the country. That's all gone now from Afghanistan. And what my sources are saying is it's going to be much more difficult to figure out what's happening from an intelligence standpoint in terms of terrorist plots in Afghanistan and then to take action to strike. And that doesn't mean we're going back to the way Elizabeth described the, the threat picture right after 9-11. But it does, I think, has, it has a lot of implications for the pivot that the Biden administration wanted to make to China and to the great power conflict and for the focus that the FBI is having now on domestic terrorism, because now all of a sudden we have to worry again about international terrorism. And this attack at the airport is believed by most of my sources to be the work of ISIS-K, mm-hmm. ISIS offshoot in Afghanistan, which is kind of a sworn enemy of the Taliban. But it also underscores that the Taliban is not really fully in control of the country. And in fact, I just wrote a story today about how the, the supposed head of security for the Taliban in charge of security in Kabul is a wanted terrorist with a $5 million reward on his head and is a member of the Haqqani network. So that's what we're dealing with. It's going to complicate the counterterrorism picture. It's a disturbing situation. Really important points. Perhaps the most critical in my mind that you mentioned is the reality that the Taliban is not in control of that country. And of course, we've seen that play out today with the casualties. And in particular, for those wondering, what is this ISIS-K or Khorasan, which is ISIS in Afghanistan? Let's understand something. They're people, and generally very young demographic, younger than Al-Qaeda, who essentially think Al-Qaeda is not violent enough, not activist enough. And Al-Qaeda has switched to more of kind of an idea thing that's aligned itself with the Taliban, while ISIS-K is, look, let's blow some things up. So the Taliban doesn't control the country. That means incredible challenges ahead for CIA, for DIA, without the boots on the ground. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11. I've seen the difference between having boots on the ground for intelligence collection, targeted drone strikes with accuracy from nearby or within the country. And I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground and you get all of that support and assistance. And can we do it as an intelligence community? You you bet. We've done it. The good news is, yep, we can do this remotely, but it's tough. It's tough from nations away to know what's going on on the ground there. And I do think there's concern. I also think just from an optics, political uh, ideology standpoint, we are a nation divided. We can't agree on masks or, or vaccines. And now here comes a time when we should be uniting as Ken just reported, maybe a dozen military uh, deaths. And we should be uniting and rallying, taking in refugees, supporting the military. And instead, we're in for, I'm sure, political fighting. 
I just wanted to take on the vetting conversation that we're seeing play out. And it's understandable that people would want to be reassured that we know who is coming into the country, that they have had proper security checks. So the asking of the question is really completely legitimate. I'm really frustrated at some of the political leaders who are using it very clearly as a way to wedge and create fear in Americans, because the facts are that nobody is being allowed in. They literally were holding planes last week at Dulles Airport until they had all of the security checks done. Anybody actually makes it to the United States has been biographically checked. That's a name check. And Frank, you know this very well. I mean, this is running through all of our systems, all of our holdings. If they have criminal records, if they have any sort of association suspected or known with the terrorists, they're not allowed in. And then we do bi biometric checks, facial, fingerprint. And that's really important in the context of Afghanistan because DOD has been collecting battlefield evidence from IEDs and any bomb-making fingerprints that came off of those explosives. And they have that data, and we want to make sure that nobody that made a bomb or helped plan a bomb comes here. They're running against those holdings, and that is as good as we can get for anybody that wants to come to the United States. They're checking all of our holdings and making sure that they are who they say they are, and that there's no derogatory information on the individual before they're allowed to enter. Thanks for not allowing us to move off this topic without raising the vetting issue. We know it's happening, but you're right. The messaging of it, the Biden administration needs to ensure even over message and with detail, the kind of vetting process that's going on here, because it's going to become a cause for concern for many who just want another cause and look, let's face facts. The administration does not need another blow in the form of, God forbid, one of the refugees coming in and eventually acting out violently in some form. So valid concern, but needs to be messaged as to exactly what's being done to mitigate the risk. Hi, everybody. Harry here. I hope you're enjoying listening to the experts discuss the Kabul bombing, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the manifold implications of both for the fight against terror abroad and at home. It's now time for a word from our sponsor, Total Wine & More, or not a word really, but rather the latest entry in our recurring feature, A Spirited Debate. And this week you'll be hearing from the experts at Total Wine discuss the issue of decanting. Today's spirited debate asks, to decant or not to decant? That is the question. And the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment if there is a lot of it because sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate, which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best. This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Not only young reds and whites can benefit from decanting. Despite some controversies over the practice, decanting some sparkling wines like Maillie Brut Champagne can expand their flavors. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. Since we've talked a little bit about the domestic terrorism nexus, we'd be remiss in not talking about a recent Trump rally in Cullman, Alabama, where the former president said to everybody, hey, I've got my COVID vaccine. 
and I'm encouraging you to get to do the same. And he was roundly booed by what sounded like many, if not most, in the crowd. And he was preceded by Congressman Mo Brooks from Alabama, who had the audacity to suggest that maybe it's time to move off of the focus on the election fraud and look forward to the next election. He was roundly booed for that, even issued a retraction where he doubled down on the fraud and said, yeah, no, I, I, I want to just let everybody know I think there was a significant fraud and I'm all for audits everywhere. So here's the question. What I took away from that, when someone, even Trump and Bo Brooks, tried to inject some sanity into, into a rally, they were booed. And of course, a whole host of people, including Alex Jones, jumped all over them and called Trump a dumbass. Here's the question for folks like us who study the domestic threat. Is this an ominous signal of some kind that you can't put craziness back in the bottle? That what these leaders have created in terms of extremist ideology is with us for a while, even in the form of some kind of semi-permanent insurgency, regardless of whether or not those who created this mess are trying to restrain it. I think to your point, They've lost control of the narrative. And one of the pieces of evidence of that is this story that was in the New York Times about how a news article about a doctor who died after receiving a COVID vaccine was Facebook's most viewed link in the U.S. in the first quarter of 2021. And it was really popular among vaccine skeptics. So it, it isn't just Donald Trump saying it. It's taken on a life of its own. And our adversaries, Russia and China, are out there flogging vaccine disinformation on social media. And so whether or not Trump decides to do the right thing on this one particular narrow issue or his allies, it's out there in the land and they've lost control of it. Yeah, pretty scary. I think to try to put any dent in this Frankenstein's monster that the monsters have created is going to require a real <laughs> concerted effort by main, so-called mainstream Republicans. And I, people like Mitch McConnell may now into that category compared to some of their more right-wing extremist colleagues to push back on this to try to contain this threat because just as we tried to contain the soviet threat for decades we're now in a situation where we had a policy of containment with respect to this domestic extremist threat and we have accelerants like tucker carlson and laura ingram inflaming their followers by the millions it's a powder keg and people like mo brooks are shouted down, it's just another sign that the mob has gone beyond the reach. It's going to create a bigger challenge for domestic intelligence at the Bureau, law enforcement around the country, and it is positively scary. So how do we, I don't want to say fix this, but how do we start making a dent in this problem? Because someday through uh, nature taking its course or irrelevancy, Trump is going to fade off into the sunset, but we're left with this. What do we do? It really is frightening. I don't know if you guys follow the University of Chicago's study on extremism. They assess that there are 21 million Americans that believe these two statements, that the election was stolen and Biden is an illegitimate president and use of force is necessary to restore Trump to the presidency. So 21 million Americans think that political violence is justified. And that is, by the way, the definition of terrorism. 21 million Americans believe that an act of terrorism for their ideological cause is justified. Now, not all of them are going to go actually do something. But I can't recall a time in our history where you have such a mass group of people willing to think that violence is called for outside of the Civil War or outside of, I suppose, our founding when we rebelled against the King of England. It really is something that's so far beyond anything that law enforcement or security officials can manage, we are at a turning point here. We either change the way that we conduct ourselves in public and actually return to this concept called facts and truth and recognize the influence that our words are having. I mean, I love the First Amendment, but the data is showing us that people are speaking with large platforms and then hate crimes occur. And people get hurt and people get killed. It's not just like, oh, we think that there's a connection. There is a demonstrated connection. Is that the kind of country we want? Or are we going to become more responsible 
for those that have platforms and influence large numbers of people. This is at a societal rot and you have to go really deep to start to fix the rot. You have to go to everything from local trying to return people back to caring more about their local government than they care about their national government. That's really hard to do. You have to go back to basics in how we interact with individuals in society, like loving one another and being kind to one another. This sounds a little juvenile, but we've lost the ability to just be kind in our daily life. And then there's an educational aspect to this, and we need to do a much better job. I have slight hope that some of this is generational because the polls are showing that it's older demographics that tend to be bought in more to these conspiracy theories. And and perhaps when that generation ages out and moves on, younger generations who are more used to working with technology, perhaps there's a little bit more sophistication and knowing that you should check your sources and double check to make sure things are true. But I'm not going to put my hope just in that. We've seen even with QAnon impacting the younger demographics. It's more than just people over the age of 60. We really do need to, as a society, figure out how to educate people and inoculate them against the disinformation that is not just happening on the inside for money and power. Russia, China, they're looking to cause the societal collapse. So we are at a tipping point, and I don't know how to sound the alarm loud enough for the politicians, for the media folks that make tons of money off of all of those clicks that they get. I'm sure like many, if not all of us on this panel, I'm, I'm growing weary of being that person who just is the doom and gloom guy. But I got to tell you, that's where I'm at with this. And people might say, well, Frank, you're making a whole lot out of Mo Brooks and Trump getting booed at a rally. But I see it that way. I see it as very telling of where we are. And when you combine it with fights breaking out at school board meetings over trying to just protect our kids, we're in a bad place. Fights breaking out about curriculum. And I say that because if you look at the released uh, new strategy to combat domestic terrorism released through, you know, by the White House through the Attorney General, I've read it a couple of times. It's a mile wide and about an inch deep, but it talks to all these things we just mentioned, the education piece, the social media piece. It talks about we need to make kids more savvy consumers. It keeps using the phrase digital literacy. All of that's just Wonderful, but we can't even agree. Talk about curriculum. Are you going to be the one who suggests a digital literacy curriculum and teaching kids how to tell truth from fiction when we can't agree on masks or vaccinated teachers? All of that strategy sounds great, but it's going to be very difficult to execute in this environment. And I've got to talk about social media as playing a role. When you see those people boo at that rally, their own leaders, you see the power of propaganda when someone gets a steady diet on their social media feed, on their news network, feeding them this, we've got to fight the infidels. Someone's attacking your religion. Someone's attacking your beliefs. This has, in a sense, become a religion. And that's, as, as everyone on this panel knows, that's extremely dangerous. When people would convert an ideology to a religion, feel it's under attack, this is not unlike my counterterrorism days when you see somebody willing to die for the cause. And, and yeah, there are people in the hospital right now saying they still won't take the vaccine. So, yeah, there are people willing to die for it. And Frank, just as a, another illustration of the kind of extremism that's loose in the land, I got a kind of a reminder of it on Friday when we broke the story that the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt and killed her during the January 6th insurrection had been exonerated by the Capitol Police, having already been exonerated by the Justice Department and, and the FBI, just a formality, wrote a, a basic story about that. I got a ton of angry emails from people who, in, who were convinced that officer is a murderer and that what she was doing was totally justified. And when I get email, when people take the time to find my email address, I know that they're representing thousands of other people that think the same way. And the anger and the vitriol was just shocking to me because these are people that in another life would have been very pro-law enforcement, presumably. But that is now out the window. Indeed, back the blue has taken on a, a different meaning, apparently, if it means anything at all. And let me echo your sentiments. There's just an uptick in the most vile, profane, and violent threats uh, that I get now every single week. 
some of them criminally actionable. We can't get along with anyone who thinks differently than us. And look, while the violence seems heavily weighted toward right-wing extremism, there's an increasing inability or unwillingness in all sides to hear opposing views. And you see it in the response to reporting on Afghanistan. Nobody wants to hear anything that could reflect poorly on their guy, their candidate, their president. You know, you're going to blame Trump. You're going to blame Biden. Everybody wants to play the blame game. And I feel for people like you, Ken, who have to just report facts because as you said, shame on you for reporting uh, facts. And here comes, here comes the response. You know, the one thing we counted on, Frank, if we ever came to an inflection point like this in our country's history, we never thought we would, is that there would be a moment where responsible public officials would say enough is enough, where a Joseph McCarthy would be called out, stigmatized, censured, jettisoned, cast into the wilderness. And (laughs) it just hasn't happened. The entire Republican Party, to our shock, has fallen, for the most part, hook, line, and sinker, and thrall to a would-be despot and his minions. And you can count on one hand the number of Liz Cheney's or Adam Kinzinger's who have stood apart and watched what has happened to them in the context of their party. And to me, that has been the most shocking thing of all, that one of the great pillars of our political system, the Republican Party, has become what it is today, which is largely an accelerant of the very extremist trends. That's what gives me the most despair, I think. Yeah, indeed. And I don't want to move off this topic until I get my, my get on my soapbox about social media. And I am an advocate for further regulation of social media platforms. I do not believe they are media at all. I believe they're more like a public utility that demands regulation. In fact, their own CEOs are asking for help. They say they can't do it themselves. The national strategy to combat domestic terrorism does speak a lot about very creative partnerships needed between law enforcement, intelligence, and social media. I'm waiting to see how that plays out. But simple things like rating the accuracy and safety of a social media platform. So you can tell your kids, hey, you you seem to be frequenting a platform that's been rated C- minus for accuracy and safety. That's a problem. That Those kinds of things. And, and many of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are saying, yeah, please do that. We're trying hard. And there are others who aren't trying hard. And we want to get credit for trying hard. This is what fuels the steady drumbeat of the conspiracy theories uh, that lead to violence. I totally agree with you. We're overdue. The algorithms that promote the grievance are monetized. And it wasn't designed to promote radicalization, but it has, in fact, led to radicalization and let's create the incentive, the legal penalties to fix that. But I do think that this is solvable. I work for Moonshot and their chief strategy officer, and they work to combat online harms have been working on the violent extremism problem for the last six years. And they're able to see levels of harmful content and be able to flag when users are moving through increased radicalization. The analysis that Moonshot does is is valuable for Homeland Security Advisor to understand if, if there are changes happening in their state or if in their area of jurisdiction. Think of it like the ability to have the weather service say conditions are right for a tornado. The environment is ripe for civil unrest. The environment is ripe for violence. But there's more that we could be doing if the tech companies actually wanted to go farther than what they are currently doing. There's a lot that they have done. They get beat up a lot. They have done a lot. They've made a ton of progress in the last five years. But there is more that they could be doing. And I think technology can help solve this problem too. We just need to, as a society, say, no, this is now a requirement. Agree completely to draw maybe what may not be the best uh, analogy here. We've heard even this week of talk out of Washington to standardize basic cybersecurity requirements. If you want to be a part of the national infrastructure, you got to do this, this, and this. You got to use third-party authentication or VPN. Well, what about doing that, setting basic standards for accuracy, safety, security with our social media? But I'm in agreement. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million health care supporters, 
Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. Let's move to other news. Let's talk about the select committee issuing a very broad request for records as they go about investigating the violence of January 6th to include a large request to the National Archives, the official repository of record for White House communications. Their request read something to the effect of, hey, give us anything with these pertains to January 6th, electoral college ratification uh, out of the White House to and from the following people, including members of Congress and their staff. What do you make of that? First of all, is this a logical point in the investigation? What are the next steps you see coming with the investigation, encouraged by it? Are you concerned about the broadness of it? Does the National Archives even have the, the staff to comply with what I think was a two-week deadline for all of this? One reaction I had was with respect to their reiteration of pending requests that were made by other uh, congressional committees as far back as March for voluntary compliance. And here they are only asking for voluntary compliance. This is a request for documents. It's not a subpoena. So I'm somewhat quizzical as to why we're giving even two more weeks for voluntary compliance with requests that were made back in March. I, look, there's a gun ticking right now, a clock ticking. There's the prospect for the Republicans taking the House majority next fall. That means this select committee has to really swiftly and perhaps even ruthlessly exercising the full force of their congressional oversight authorities, which are constitutionally based to give short turnaround times for their voluntary requests to move more briskly than they might otherwise to subpoenas, to have resources of lawyers, outside counsel who can mobilize to form litigation teams, SWAT teams, because a lot of these subpoenas are going to have to be litigated. That's going to take months and months and months. They need to be working backwards from these timelines to ensure that they have time to get the documents they need to begin to unpack all the issues that this request encompasses. I mean, this is their best shot, basically encompassing the full substantive sweep of what happened on January 6th, I mean, in the weeks before and after. They're going after Department of Justice records. They're going after records relating to what Pentagon officials were doing on January 6th. Although I didn't see a request specifically delineated like this, it looks like there are requests that would capture why the National Guard was not mobilized faster to deal with the attack on the Capitol. So I'm encouraged in part that, you know, we have seen this broad-based request, but I, I think they really need to put some teeth into this. And what are they going to do when the two-week deadline expires? What's their next move? Are we going to see subpoenas? Are we going to see the type of negotiation that often results between the congressional committee and the executive branch? There isn't time for those kinds of accommodations that customarily attach to congressional requests for documents from the executive branch in this particular context. They're going to have to be more, be more ruthless about how they pursue this investigation. I'm with you on it. I just think it's taken an awfully long time to get to even a pretty please request, which is what we're dealing with here. And there's been reporting in the last 24 hours, at least on this recording date, that uh, former President Trump intends to sue, doesn't want records released, is likely to claim some kind of executive privilege. This can drag on and on and on. What are the other thoughts on this? I mean, Congress has a right to many of these documents, leaving aside the question of executive privilege. It's always baffled me why they're so passive in the face of resistance by the executive branch. This is a kind of a silly question, but you know, can't they just send the House sergeant at arms over and, and walk into the building and demand the documents and seize the documents the way the FBI would? These are the people's documents. This is the government doing the people's business. And we're trying to get to the bottom of one of the most consequential events in American history. 
and Frank, you and I have talked about this before, like the Senate committee did a very thorough investigation of what the Capitol Police knew and what documents were in their possession and where the intelligence went, but did not get at all to the ground truth of what the FBI knew, what their sources inside these far-right groups were telling them. Were some people urging them to put out an intelligence bulletin, some FBI analysts? And that's just one small part of it. We don't know the answers. There are documents and emails and message traffic that would answer those questions. And this committee has a right to those, it seems to me. And the notion that they should be resisted, I just think that's mind-boggling. Yeah, over the Trump administration years, we saw a complete erosion of the concept of three equal branches of government, Uh, people thumbing their nose at at congressional uh, testimony requests, subpoenas. I don't get it. I don't want to see the further erosion of that concept of three equal branches of government. And you're right. There's more to learn here. We learned recently that the Secret Service tipped off the Capitol Police on intelligence that they had that there was a serious officer safety concern for January 6th. So there's a lot to this. And I wonder where this leads next. Are we going to see subpoenas to telecom carriers for phone records, email records? And for example, has a formal preservation order gone out telling those platforms, those carriers, lock in everything now. We're going to ask you for it. I'm hopeful that there is below the iceberg activity taking place that the committee has seen fit appropriately not to publicize, like preservation requests to communication carriers or perhaps subpoenas that have been issued where the recipient has been asked to keep them confidential. All that needs to be happening. Preservation requests are an essential and typical first step, which just puts the recipient on notice that there's an ongoing investigation. Here are the records that We are asking you to gather and hold. It also creates a mechanism for the Department of Justice to charge somebody with obstruction of justice if the records that are the subject of the preservation request are fiddled with or destroyed. But all that takes a lot of time, and we don't have a lot of time. Time is not our ally here, which is why this select committee needs to move quickly. It needs to have shorter turnaround times for compliance by communications carriers. And in every respect, just surge resources forward to gather all the relevant as quickly as possible. Yeah, I, I actually would have liked to have seen the uh, subpoenas of, to telecom carriers and social media platforms immediately, even before this uh, National Archives request. Here's why. In trying to set expectations on what you can expect to see, let's not forget the National Archives is a repository for official communications from government-issued devices. So, what does that mean? Well, we have a former president who famously has never used emails. So he does some phone work, um, usually on a private phone is my understanding. And so if you've got nefarious intent from Congress members, staff members regarding January 6th, Trump cohorts, unlikely they're using their government issued devices to have those conversations. So the National Archives request, yep, important, certainly, yep. But I think even more important would be to hit up the phone carriers and figure out who called who when. I think one encouraging sign is that the committee recently hired a chief investigative counsel, Tim Heafy, who was a former DOJ colleague and a former U.S. attorney, I think, for the Western District of Virginia. He brings a sophisticated set of experience from overseeing complex investigations. I think his arrival is going to help instill a greater order and precision and strategy, perhaps, to the ongoing investigation. And hopefully they can move forward across a spectrum of investigative activities now to gather the information they need. I think if if they do proceed to subpoena public bodies, government bodies, you will see public facing indicia of that from the select committee that those subpoenas have issued. Elizabeth, you've got kind of your finger on the pulse of the domestic picture. Are we having a conversation amongst ourselves about the select committee? By that, I mean, is much of America going to have a collective shrug no matter what this committee does or finds? And let's not forget the first thing the select committee did was have police officers, some represented by David here on our panel, testify in what I thought was incredibly compelling testimony. And many folks on social media just attacked them. And so what's going to happen with the results of this committee? Are people going to care? Is it actually going to further fuel of violent extremism? I'm so torn. Your question is about what does the rest of America think? And I do think it's, they've moved on. There will be some that care and follow, but the average American, I think is exhausted from a really 
tough set of 18 months dealing with this pandemic, dealing with the economic impact of that, dealing with kids not being able to be really in school last year. And now we're starting school and a lot of kids are back to virtual learning because we can't keep the schools open. The day-to-day stuff of life is just so tough right now. I have talked to those that are not what I would consider the the far extremes on, on either side of the political spectrum. And what the attitude you hear from most is like, I'm just turning off the TV. I'm just trying to like decompress. I'm just, I find myself angry all the time, which by the way, is kind of a normal emotion for all of us to have given what COVID has meant for most of us. But you add into it the politics and the supposed stolen election or no, it's not stolen. And just, we, we are spending a lot of time in this place of anger. And so many are perhaps choosing what is a healthy thing, turning it off, going back to basics, connecting with real live human beings in your neighborhood, hopefully in your school or in your office, if you're able to go back to them. And maybe on the other side of trying to get back to what it feels like to be normal and human, which would require for COVID to eventually go away, maybe on the other side, you have time and energy and space to actually process what happened on January 6th and to process how close we came as a country to potentially irreversible damage. And I think I'll flip it back to those of us that are paying attention. I really so disappointed that we don't have an independent commission looking at this because the best hope we had of convincing, I don't even know the right word to use anymore, a moderate Republican, not the diehard Trump supporter, but those that were willing to be open-minded about what really happened on January 6th was to have something that was considered independent. At this point, if you're a Republican, you've heard the talking point that this is Nancy Pelosi's committee, that this is not truly bipartisan. So it's already tainted. Whatever truth that comes out of it, half of the country is not even going to allow it to have the light of day in their mind's eye. Whatever comes out of it, perhaps be helpful for some of us in the security community to to learn from it. Maybe, maybe it could lead to some criminal investigations, maybe they find something out that the Justice Department hasn't discovered yet, and maybe can hold people accountable that way. I'm kind of crossing my fingers that some of these civil suits that we've seen brought might be allowed, might be able to hold people accountable. But I think we're all looking for accountability. We're looking for truth and we're looking for accountability. And everything that is in the works right now, it's it just doesn't feel like it's going to get us fully there. Indeed. And I think we need only look to the GO at the time, the GOP controlled Senate Intelligence Committee report that found the you know, Russian interference with the election and people just don't want to hear it. They, it doesn't fit their particular narrative. So we're in uh, almost unprecedented times. Speaking of times, we are running out of our own time today after an incredibly broad, but yet somehow deep discussion. So I'm appreciative of that. So Harry has a practice on all of his episodes that he calls five words or fewer. That's where we get to answer a question often asked by a listener, but we've got to respond in five words or fewer. So let's give this a shot. Let me give you the question for today that we need to answer in five words or fewer. And that is, do you think the DOJ and FBI are investigating the root causes of January 6th to include any role played by Congress members or Trump administration officials. I can hear the wheels spinning. Does anybody want to take a crack at that first? I think it's highly unlikely. Yeah, I'm with you on the, absolutely, a contraction is one word, I'm with you. Yeah, I think it's highly unlikely. And, And yeah, that gets into the whole mindset of Merrick Garland and whether he's trying to heal the nation or doesn't want to go there, but yep, I I gotcha. Ken? In a very narrow way. Ooh, that's intriguing. That's intriguing. You care to elaborate? Well, I just think that there are some questions they can ignore on this Mm -hmm. and they're going to be records, but I think you guys are absolutely right that this is an extremely cautious attorney general. I'll just add, Frank, that if, if there are underlying facts that relate to an ongoing investigation or prosecution that are not themselves the focal point of the investigation, you you could see, this, see a few speaking indictments that contain long predicate introductory facts that talk about things that Donald Trump did or other 
political officials did, where those you know activities were not the, the subject of the investigations themselves. Yeah, well, so that feeds right into my five words response, which is only if there's overwhelming evidence. Only if there's overwhelming. Frank, that I, was mine. Oh, <laughs> I literally wrote that down, except I said strong. Strong. Yeah, I, so I think it's got to be overwhelming. And I don't mean to imply, as David pointed out, the reality is no professional prosecutor or investigator is going to ignore evidence that smacks them in the face. And But there's some encouraging signs in that. Remember, it leaked out that there was a question asked by an FBI agent of one of the defendants in the January 6th case. And that was, do you know anybody serving in Congress or any staff members in Congress? And I, I found that fascinating. I can't recall which group member it was, but it was someone in either Oath Keepers or Three Percenters or, or Proud Boys. And to me, in a massive case like this, agents are often given a script of questions to ask everybody, right? And in addition to what they come up with for that individual defendant, but there's, you know, usually intelligence gathering requirements. So agents get a list. Hey, always ask this question. If you've got an Oath Keeper or somebody in front of you, if that's one of the standard questions, do you know anybody in Congress? That's very telling. So they're not going to ignore the evidence, but I don't think they're going out of their way to go after anybody politically. That's for sure. And nor should they. Hey, it's been a great discussion on a really hot news day. And I'm glad that every one of you has joined us. There's no other panel I would have rather had on a day like this. Thanks to Elizabeth Newman, Ken Delanian, and David Lofman. Don't forget to join Harry and his panel next time on Talking Feds. All right, that's our national security episode for today. Thank you very much to Frank, Ken, Elizabeth, and David. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Naus and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Kalina Tano is our production assistant. And our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. <laughs>